everybody and welcome back to the podcast series five. I'm really happy to have you back. And if you've missed any of the previous series, please feel free to go back and listen. Also make sure that you subscribe, rate and leave a review. Hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have a return guest, a guest who was incredibly keen to get on this series again. Because for a long time now, I've wanted to do an educational, somewhat picked at random, myth-busting episode with him. So it's a secondary welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mike. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. How are you me. doing today? So this is your week off from doctoring, isn't it? Yes, and I am very excited to spend it here on the podcast. You know what? I really appreciate it because of all the guests we have on the podcast, you're the one who has the really real job. And the one who you really have to respect your time. You're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm emergency on call that day. And I'm like, well, that's a legitimate excuse. Like, okay. it's, it's my standard standby excuse for anything I don't want to do. I'm joking. <laughs> not, not about podcasts, obviously. I'm saving lives, okay. <laughs> um, what would, so how's your day go? What have you done so far? What have I done so far? I've been to the gym. Uh, I've been to uh, do lots of exercise. I've been out for coffee twice. I have... <laughs> I've made a cake. I've been to the cash and carry, you know, all, all sorts. It's all go here. I'm pretty sure all my listeners will follow you. It's not all, most of them. If you don't follow Dr. Mike the second, is that your handle, right? That is. Yeah, Dr. Mike the second. Mike has a love affair and also a hate affair with food. And my favorite thing about following him, aside from all the amazingly educational and opinionated, but in a good way, not in an annoying social media way, uh, content is that he he does like food reviews, especially on like health and fitness foods. So, have you had any health and fitness foods today, Mike? <laughs> yeah, I have. I was going to say I did have a croissant, but I also had uh, I had two packets of protein crisps, which I have. I've just got really obsessed with the with these crisps because not because they've got protein in them, but I think I ordered them once because I was like, oh, I wonder what protein crisps are like. And then I just really like them. But I'm still, <laughs> I'm really embarrassed every time I buy them because I think there's such a pointless way to get protein in. Well, how much like protein is in a pa- warm packet? Eight grams of protein. Yeah, pathetic. So At least you're even, having two. Well, yes, exactly. But you'd have to get three to hit MPS. And then, you know, by the time you've had three packets of the crisps, it's 450 calories. And then you might as and well have And that's how had, you got your, yeah, a chicken yeah, You breath. might as well have had a protein shake and a packet of crisps. If I said, give us a typical micro view of the crisps. Why are they, they good? Just, what flavour are they? So there's three different flavours. Sweet chilli, salt and vinegar and smoky barbecue. And each flavour has its own like it's it's really difficult to explain but I, I i got really into the salt and vinegar ones to start with because they look like pop chips they're like those they're round and a bit bubbly that's what i'm thinking and they taste a little bit like soil in a good way like they you know like that sort of hummusy kind of chickpea sort of earthy taste that you sometimes mm. get with like vegan protein they yeah, taste yeah, yeah. a bit like that so you feel a little bit like you're eating um a crunchy vegetable but it's salt and vinegar yeah, flavor and tastes really good you know that Bodhi, my daughter, we she we, she eats like snacks now because like we're weaning her. It's a, it's a whole thing. And they have these like kids veggie sticks and they oh, taste my like favorite. little poppadoms. Oh they're my God. They're so good. They're, they're so, so good. good. The veggie like, straws. I, yeah. Yes. Why don't they make them for adults? Honestly, babies get the best snacks. Like I don't know if you've tried the Heinz biscotti. Yeah, but um, it was, They're it was, like, they're incredible. 
What does it remind me of? Rich tea biscuits, but yeah, better. Yeah, exactly. But thicker yeah. and also flavoured as well, like longer. strawberry and banana flavour. And uh-huh. then you also, the, the thing that I, I actually used to always have those when I was dieting because I love biscuits. And they come in a packet that's basically, a, a, you know, it's a calorie controlled portion. So you're not going to probably have more than one packet, but you're basically eating, smashing a load of biscuits. And they are nice. But then it's still limited to 240 calories-ish or something like that. I still remember. I mean, I love the, you know, the cal- caloric breakdown of baby food. I'm literally Ugh. just drowning everything I give Bodhi and Olive Oil to try to get her calories in because I'm like, ter- I'm just terrified that we're moving her away from milk. Like the change is really freaking me out. But I love, <laughs> how do you know about baby food? Actually, you have, I've seen photos of you Nieces, with many. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it just, it actually just happened because I'm, this is really bad, but I was just got really jealous of this baby that I was with. It was a friend of mine's baby because they had these just these biscuits on tap. And I was like, I'm really hungry. And I was like, can I have one of those biscuits? And I had one. It was so good. Yeah, oh my I think God. There's, there's a whole world of diet food out there, I think, to explore. I think that's what's really interesting. Because like, we talk about diet culture and all of these things all the time and talk about the negative parts of it and stuff. But what we don't always talk about is the fact that there is loads of really unnecessarily calorific foods that we eat all the time. And actually, it's not always about making sacrifices to eat foods that might be lower in calories. It's sometimes about just, yeah, just smart choices that, are, that you know, foods that are no less enjoyable, but that you might end up consuming fewer calories in. One of the greatest things for me is a Solero. Like actually, always historically, before I knew about calories, I thought that eating a Solero was very similar in terms of you know, calorific intake and stuff like that as as eating a magnum would be, for example. But a magnum is two and a half times the amount of calories that that you've got in a Solero. And and I I would argue that the level of enjoyment is no different. Now, for sure, if you want a magnum, I'm not going to say, oh, you can't have a magnum because the Solero is less calories. But at the same time, there probably are many situations where you mindlessly choose a magnum where you could be choosing a Solero. And I just think that that it's, it's kind of understanding and learning about these things doesn't have to necessarily be a negative journey. This leads us so nicely into our first okay. question, which is what I'm going to say next. So, first of all, I completely agree with you. I had a, a big debate with somebody in our industry who doesn't necessarily toe the same line that we do recently, okay. which is why this question is fresh in my mind, and I'm going to be doing a whole separate podcast episode on it, who is strongly of the opinion that you cannot have healthy, unrestrictive, to an extent, like, as in whole wholly unrestrictive approach to fat loss now i disagree for all the things that we're talking about there's you don't have to cut things out your diet you just have to make smart choices whether that's lower calorie choices like a solero over a magnum on a hot Mm -hmm. day or whether that is a smaller portion of the thing you love like you know Mm -hmm. i think um marks and spencer's count on us to have a 300 calorie chicken tikka masala microwave Mm -hmm. meal and the reason it's 300 calories is not because they swapped anything out not that i'm aware of anyway it's just because it's a small portion, it's much smaller portion size than what you would get if you ordered an Indian takeaway or even made it yourself. It's not, you don't have to restrict the food you love. You don't have to cut things out. You just have to make smarter choices. Now, this is my opinion, and I don't want to force that on you because the first question is for you and I want to hear your thoughts. The first question is, is there such a thing as healthy fat loss mentally and physically, or do you think that dieting means that you have a negative body image and or a negative relationship with food. Right. So I, I think that this is a really, really complex topic and it's incredibly difficult to get right. And I think 
The reason it's so difficult to get right is because the answer is genuinely different for everybody. And I think it depends so much on your background experience in terms of how you feel about yourself, how you feel about your body image, how you feel about food, what food environment you've grown up in, what body image environment you've grown up in. You know, have you have you grown up with this constant pressure that, you know, all of your relatives are telling you that you've put on weight all the time um, and, and that you that you need to go on a diet? And, and have you grown up in a place where being thin is valued above all else, in which case you may have certain psychological hangups that may mean that if you diet excessively, you might sort of have a negative impact on either your body image or your food relationship and all of those sorts of things. But for some people, it is like food is such an inconsequential thing for a lot of people. I think we always assume that everybody else has the same attitudes towards food and towards their body shapes as we do. And it's just simply not the case. And it's not even the case for the same person at different times in their life. There are times when, for example, I could um, be really obsessed with calories and intake and, and be really to the point about how much I'm eating, how much I'm not eating, um, and not be willing to go over my calories to, a, to any sort of degree because I'm particularly motivated at that moment by fat loss. And there could be other times in my life where I'm not and I genuinely don't care. And I think it's really, really difficult to find a one-size-fits-all answer. And I think that the mistake that people keep making in the fitness industry is that they keep trying to find this one size fits all answer. I think you can you can have enough examples of people who have been led towards psychological issues, food relationship issues, body image issues from excessive dieting to know that that is a genuine risk. But you can also find people that have the same sort of issues having never gone on a diet at all. And you can also find plenty of people who diet quite successfully and quite well and quite healthily and they just prefer to live that way. And who are we to decide what is making somebody happy? We don't really know what's going on in their brain and somebody that looks or tells us that they're really happy might be really struggling and, and you know, vice versa. Someone who keeps going on about how unhappy they are all the time and how miserable everything is might not actually internally be as unhappy as other people that we know who we think are really happy. And I think that the key is to try and have a certain amount of kind of self-analysis and self-understanding to know when things are right for you. I also think that one of the biggest arguments, sorry to keep rambling on, I feel like I've not taken a breath no. yet. But no, I really just... <laughs> like it. I like, all your points are great. I think that people also, they don't diet well. Like, I don't think that generally, if you, if you go, if you say, right, general member of the general public, what are you going to do to lose weight? So if I take myself before, so I, so um, anyone who's listening who, who doesn't know my history, I started off on this kind of very, very overweight, very much with no interest in health or fitness. And I went on a bit of a fitness lifestyle change journey, blah, 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 and learned a lot about this stuff. So if I go back years to when I was in, in that previous position, when I had no interest in it, didn't care about it or at least didn't think I cared about it, and was eating and living as I saw fit, the way that I would, when I would go on these moments where I go, do you know what, actually, I think I should lose weight. I would go to the healthy food aisles in um, the supermarket and I'd buy up a load of Rivita and cottage cheese and lettuce and like vegetables and stuff. And I would just eat those things and I would eat as little of them as I possibly could. 
it would last about two or three weeks and then I would give up because it was miserable. Because I didn't know about all of these things that we've been talking about thus far, I was making the process of dieting A, miserable and B, unsuccessful because I didn't know what I was doing. And I think that you cannot compare one person who is basically being excessively, like, overly restrictive with their food choices, um, completely clueless with the food volume and how much food they're eating and isn't doing any form of like tracking to even get any positive feedback that they might be making any progress. And somebody who is in, introduced something like some tracking, you know, some flexible tracking, some flexible dieting, is factoring in foods that they enjoy and is having a sensible approach to it, like, you know, wanting to change their lifestyle rather than quote unquote going on a diet. I just, I think that the two are almost incomparable. And, and that's not to say that you can't still have the risk of, of developing a poor relationship food, with food with the best of possible intentions and with the most knowledge. You, you, that still can happen. And I think it's naive of us to just ignore that risk entirely. But I think it's silly of us also to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just go, fat loss is not, it's not possible to, to have healthy fat loss. You shouldn't aim for fat loss. And I think there are better ways of doing it. And I think that there are um, different ways of doing it. But I think it really depends on on the person and where they're at in their head at that time, who they've got around them, what their environment is like, what their job is like, you know, what their lifestyle is like, really. I love that answer. I never want you to stop yourself talking. That's why you're here, is to talk. And I absolutely love it. And I do enough talking for the whole world, so you're fine. Just Okay, so just a couple of things I just want to um, say there for the audience listening is that, again, it is about becoming smart with portion sizes, getting smarter with food swap so you don't have to cut things out as a coach. Generally, I really steer clients away from cutting things out unless it's something like really bad that they're doing on like a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> Generally speaking, though, even then I'll say like, why don't we just reduce or why don't we swap? Um, and as Mike said, one thing that I didn't touch on and that I really like that he said is, you don't have to track forever. And I understand that for some people it can really promote a hyper food focus and it can actually create some issues. But I think tracking initially, so you get an idea of the Solero v. the Magnum. So you get an idea of what's high protein, I, aka not the protein crisps, maybe go for a protein bar if it's been three or four hours since your last protein serving. Getting an idea of the, the calories and the, the macros, specifically protein, I'm not that fussed about anything else, but getting that in there. And, and also understanding that this now gives you quite a lot of flexibility with your diet. Tracking for an initial period, but not not like unconsciously tracking, paying attention. Just for like four, I'd say four to six weeks, is going to be a crash course in a layman's nutrition. So mm -hmm. I love everything you said. And Mike, I know that this is something that you talk about a lot on social media and just generally that you hate absolutes, which I agree with, and you hate judgment on social media. And I think it's true. Like we need to start. I know it, it sounds good and everybody's, it's like a magnet. Everybody's so attracted to this big voice that makes an absolute statement. And it's clickbaity and it's soundbitey and it's sexy and it's, you want to align yourself with that loud person. But as great as that is for social media, that's not real life. Come on, guys. We know that that's not real life. And always, I just say, even if you enjoy it and you follow it, great. But take a step back and ask yourself, but does that fit with the watercolor of the people I know, the experiences mm -hmm. I've had and, and, and also in comparison with each other? And I love that about you, Mike. And I love that you talk about that. And let's, let's move on from 
fat loss, although still kind of. Can I say one loss. more thing? I just yes. something I forgot to say, which I think is really important. That just in that vein as well, I think it's also really important to always check yourself. Like we talked about Soleros earlier, and and one of the lowest points in my dieting history was when I cut out broccoli in my diet so that I could replace it with a Solero because I realised it was the same <laughs> number of calories. And yeah, so I nutrition think, still matters. Exactly. So I think, again, like you can you can do all these things to justify a certain behavior, but then sometimes the pendulum swings in the other direction. And I think it's just really important to be mindful that actually balance is the aim. And if you're doing things that make you think, oh, this isn't, you know, like having factoring in a certain percentage of your calories to be you know from from foods that you love is great it doesn't mean you have to just live on you know i was gonna say 20 no. soleros a day but yeah. but that's again why we would cut where you know you have you i mean you ideally if you had a coach or if you kind of if you figured out what you were doing in a, in a ideally you would really be focused on things like fruit veg protein yeah, and then 100%. around that let the chips fall where they may i mean i also like women to have like a minimum fat count but yeah Beyond that, let the chips fall where they may. And like, you have the non-negotiables, you have the foundation. And then around that, it's like, whatever the fuck you want to do, like, that's on you. But yeah, I agree. There's no, like all calories are not created equal when it comes to nutrition specifically. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Simprove, a science-backed water-based supplement containing billions of live and active bacteria that support the gut. The podcast loves to discuss all things gut health and Simproof are here to support these conversations. I've actually been taking Simproof for years now. It's a staple of my morning routine, helping support my overall gut health and function. It's such an important part of my routine. I even take it on holiday with me to ensure that I'm supporting my gut health, which we all know can do strange things when traveling and eating different foods. Simprove is a non-dairy food supplement proven to deliver live and active bacteria straight to the gut so it can truly have an impact. Nine out of 10 customers report feeling a beneficial difference after taking Simprove and continue to take it daily. Simprove are offering a 50% discount on your first three month subscription. Use code BODCAST50, that's BODCAST50 to order yours today. Visit simprove.com and use code BODCAST50 for 50% off your first three month subscription. Okay, so moving on from fat loss, it's still kind of in the vein of fat loss. Mike, what is Ozempic um, and all similar types of Ozempic? How does it work? And should people who are looking for fat loss slash weight loss be taking it? Excellent question. And this is a really interesting topic because it's kind of really unfolding at the moment um, in many different ways and ways that I didn't quite expect when I first started talking about it on social media. So a few months ago, Ozempic was licensed to be used specifically for weight loss. It's a drug. The type of drug it's called is a um, it's a GLP-1 analog, which basically means that it, it, it mimics GLP-1, which is something that is released after we eat. It was originally invented to be a drug to help with type 2 diabetes and it helps to regulate blood sugar control. And one of the side effects is that it it basically causes a reduced appetite because it's similar to the, you know, to the feeling that we get when we're we're full. So a lot of diabetic people who took it were losing weight as a side effect. Uh, and then it's become licensed for use specifically in weight loss. So the original name of it is the drug name is called semaglutide, and Azempic is, is one of the trade names. There's, a, there's another one called Wegovi as well. And it's really interesting because watching the kind of social media discussion around this unfold was absolutely fascinating because you've got this thing that's like 
really, really hard. Fat loss. We've been trying to find the secrets to fat loss for a really, really long time. And everybody's banging on about how fat loss is just a calorie deficit. So just do a calorie deficit. So then you imagine all the things that we do when we're dieting to create a calorie deficit. We try and find ways to trick ourselves to be fuller on a smaller amount of food, right? It's basically the basic principle of dieting. This is essentially a drug that does that for us. And suddenly everyone loses their mind that it's like cheating. So I'm sort of watching this unfold going, well, then Halo Top is cheating. Like yes. Diet Coke is cheating. Everything that we do you know, food-wise to, to try and help us lose weight is cheating. So where is this coming from? Is this actually, as we might suspect, coming from this weird sort of fat-phobic diet culture sort of thing? Like actually, if, you know, fat loss is great, but you need to earn it. Like you need to do it my way. You need to learn how to suffer in order to lose fat because it's your fault that you're fat in the first place. So it brought up a lot of these really interesting opinions that that I thought were fascinating to listen to. And I thought, hang on a minute, everyone is trying to get people to lose weight and then suddenly this thing comes along that might actually make that happen. <laughs> and everyone goes, nah, don't want it. It was a bit like vaccines, actually, when, you know, when when everyone was up in arms about all the lockdown rules with COVID. And then they go, well, look, cool, we've got these vaccines now. So maybe we can reduce lockdowns and things. Everyone's like, nah, not interested. You know, <laughs> it's really it's really interesting, like the way that, that these sorts of, you know, the psychological the psychological process behind this. And, you know, it's obviously like massively complicated. So part of the issue with with azempic well there's a few issues with azempic i mean there are side effects like there are for any drug well this is what i was going to ask you yeah because i agree with every single point you've made what are the common side effects and what are the potentially less common but more scary side effects so i think that most of the side effects and again i i've not purposely looked this up so i might i might get this wrong but i think it's mainly sort of gastrointestinal type side effects like you know nausea um diarrhea that sort of stuff uh I, I would have to look it up if i'm honest I don't, i'm not great at remembering all these things off off by heart there was also some data with regards to potential risk for developing thyroid cancers which was based on animal studies see this is what i read and it's yeah. based on animal studies and we're not animal well you know it's not just that we're not an animal so I, I don't know that it's been studied particularly extensively in humans i think the hypothesis behind it is that it, that based on the types of cells that seemed to be affected in the in the thyroid that were that were at risk from the the azempic in the animals they're not the kinds of cells that we have in our thyroid so it was thought to not potentially be as much of an issue but and this is what's really interesting about this is it's listed as a potential risk and so it's something that should be discussed because we don't know about it and i think a lot of people think that all of these risks and worries and stuff are suppressed um, so that nobody knows about them. But actually, you know, it, it is something that is kind of commonly listed as a side effect because it's the safest thing to do is to kind of, you know, to, to warn people that it's a possibility. We, we don't know how much of a possibility it could be. And I think that, you know, judging on the kind of the balance of probability, I think it's not as not as worrying as it sounds. But again, it's, it's difficult to be 100% certain about any of this stuff. But um, one of the biggest issues that's happened with Azempic is that now there's a massive shortage because it's being used off label for people to to lose weight and diabetic people who aren't able to to you know aren't able to aren't able to get hold of it and that's a real worry and a real problem and I don't know if it would be as much of a problem if because there there was kind of stringent guidelines about 
what sort of scenarios it's supposed to be used at, like above a certain BMI and with certain um, certain levels of risk for developing certain conditions like type 2 diabetes or having them already. I think it's ended up being used in situations where probably it's not it's not really indicated, you know, because people just want to lose weight for cosmetic reasons. Um, the other the other big criticism about it is that a lot of the data suggests that when people stop using it, they gain back the weight that they lost. Because essentially, if you're suppressing somebody's appetite, they're eating less. And then when you stop suppressing their appetite, they go back to eating the same amount of food that they were eating before. And then this brings up another really interesting argument, which is about whether we classify obesity as a chronic illness or whether we don't. Like, so you never really hear headlines about blood pressure medication that go, oh, I can't believe how useless this blood pressure medication is. If you stop taking it, your blood pressure just goes back up to what it was before. Because the point is, is that hypertension, high blood pressure is a, a, a chronic condition and it needs treating kind of long term. So you don't just suddenly stop needing treatment for it. So if you wish to treat um, obesity as a chronic illness, then you sort of have to treat it as a chronic illness. If you don't, then you have to make decisions about that as well. But I think ultimately, you know, if we could combine the education and the socioeconomic change and all of the other things that are required to actually reduce this obesogenic environment that we live in um, with stuff like Azempic as well, then I don't really see the problem apart from, you know, if we if we if we can make make enough of it that everyone. Well, yeah, I mean, he's then picked like the loo roll of lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) You really don't need it. But bye. (laughs) Sat there on the loo like, uh oh, Um, I do think I found it really interesting. So I obviously was asked it by a lot of my clients about it. And I basically said, look, if you don't need it, leave it alone, because Mm -hmm. let's just say the side effects do turn out to be, mm-hmm. you know, a re- quite a real threat. But you never needed it. You, it, it and you could have done this in a, in a myriad of different ways. Leave it alone. Completely agree with you. If you have um, a chronic issue, re- obesity, and it's causing any kind of metabolic syndrome, then it's an option. Why not consider mm-hmm. it? What I found about what was interesting, and I think it was when semaglutide, although you said it differently to how I say it, which is really normal for me. Yeah, I'm a no one really, like, no one really knows how to say these things anyway. Say Everyone says them differently. Everyone just says their own thing. I found it really interesting that this, um, all of a sudden, the PTs and coaches that I've followed and respected in certain areas, this like, I don't know, this like anti-obesity like hatred of people who are carrying um, a significant amount of excess body fat really came to the fore and I was like wow that's enlightening um and you're right I saw a real nasty side of a lot of people in my industry that I maybe respected a bit before for telling the truth and being quite matter of fact and I just thought oh you know there's this lack of compassion and understanding but also the lack of self-awareness that they lacked the understanding because they'd never suffered with obesity um I found that really interesting and, and quite depressing but there you go um okay let's move into what is the main slash most common argument, <laughs> which we're seeing a lot of recently, behind doctors predominantly telling people <laughs> that calories are not relevant to fat loss or fat gain? Do calories in via food and calories out via movement, this is called the energy balance, matter when it comes to body fat gain and body fat loss? 
Well, yeah, they do, <laughs> which you know. Kind of. Um, I think. I think the. Um, I think the reason, like, again, I've done so much reflecting on on this argument and where this all comes from that I I struggle to put it concisely into into a few sentences. But I think what's really interesting about it is that again, it's it comes back to that pendulum swing that we talked about before. Is it's like well, calories. Uh, calories in calories out is physiology right but life is not physiology and I think that the actual argument that is legitimate about calories in versus calories out is that we can't be as controlling about those things as we actually think that we can because if you factor in yes if you track stuff you know how many calories are on a packet and how many calories you're putting in in your face but you don't necessarily know actually how much oil that particular portion of something got cooked in and especially if you're eating out at a restaurant or buying foods that you're preparing yourself have you added things up correctly like there's so much margin of error in terms of in terms of counting calories and then I think that there is some evidence although I don't think it's as I think it's I think it's very commonly exaggerated but in terms of the absorption of different calories from different types of foods and stuff like that and and so you know we might absorb more calories from 300 calories of um, pizza than we might do from 300 calories of almonds right so then there's that argument and then particularly with expenditure that's almost impossible to track it's almost impossible to have any idea of how much we're actually expending energy wise so it does muddy the waters from that perspective. And then you bring nutrition into the um, into the equation as well. And so then people go, well, all calories aren't created equal, like we said before. If there's the same amount of calories in a Solero as there are in, in a load of broccoli, that doesn't mean that you should just have a Solero. Absolutely correct. But if you're arguing, it depends whether you're you're living a life to be nutritious to be nourished or whether you're having an argument with somebody on the internet because actually scientifically and physiologically you will gain the same amount of weight from a Solero from 98 calories of a Solero well, except sort of because you've got that whole absorption thing that I was talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. but then the other side to think about it is that if you wake up in the morning and have a Solero for breakfast or you have broccoli for breakfast to, of 98 calories of broccoli the chances that you will eat again the, the next time you'll eat again will probably be sooner if it's a solero than if it's a load of broccoli because you're you know in, if you're talking about food volume and all of those sorts of things those things are also important if you are smashing a load of processed food that makes you just feel a bit sort of sluggish and lethargic and a bit bloated and um and hungry again in a couple of hours you're also probably less likely to expend as much energy through neat and through um really efficient gym sessions like if you're if you're having really great nutrition so actually then you actually get into a situation where you can argue that it isn't just about calories in and calories out it is just about calories in and calories out but what those calories in are and what those calories out are do depend on what calories you or, you know and what kinds of foods that you eat and then you've got like arguments about things like gut health and stuff like that which again i think are massively exaggerated but undoubtedly will end up realizing that they do play some sort of impact on this sort of stuff in terms of food absorption nutrient absorption and stuff like that but those aren't really things that you can measure or that you can particularly manage so then you just come back to this idea that, well, what if we just try and aim for a minimally processed whole foods based diet to as as far as is realistic that we possibly can? 
and do as much physical activity that we possibly can and try and drink enough water and eat enough fibre and all of that kind of stuff, then maybe we can just stop arguing on the internet about what we're supposed <laughs> to be doing and, and what's better than something else. Because actually, in reality, I, I don't think any of us really disagree with each other on the fundamentals of what healthy eating looks like. But I think what a lot of people don't take into account is being realistic and real life when it comes to eating and if you take somebody who has spent their whole life as I had up to up to a certain age living off you know takeaways and mostly processed food and convenience food and you just tell them right well now from now on you will just eat chickpeas and broccoli it isn't going to work like we have to introduce some level of real life and if you then also have that person who is constantly bombarded with adverts that tell them to eat more packaging that tells them to eat more um buy one get one free deals that tell them to eat more portion levels that tell them to eat more in in restaurants and takeaways you know it people are fighting a losing battle so i don't think it's necessarily that people want to go oh it's just about calories that's all that matters it's more that people recognize that actually the easiest thing to try and get a handle on out of all of the possible things is to try and limit the amount of calories that we consume yeah and nobody's saying it's perfect no but but then no um, diet is no matter exactly. what diet is being perpetrated or or kind of sworn by there is no it's never going to be perfect and and but i agree with you i think the one brilliant thing about tracking you know anybody who's been working in this industry long enough and mike will completely i i, I think agree with this is that the hardest part about getting somebody fit and healthy and active and if they need to lose some body fat losing some body fat gaining some size it's not here are the numbers this is what you should do here's a diet here's a training plan it's human behavior mm -hmm. and the beautiful thing about tracking calories and macros as i've previously said is that it gives you a crash course in nutrition and even if you know nothing about it it shows you actually again back to the salario honestly we should be sponsored by salario <laughs> It shows you that you can still choose, you know, a sweet treat in the sun. Yeah. You don't have to say no. But yeah. actually, here's maybe a more goal-appropriate option than this one. And it actually, you know, a lot of my clients, some of them are like, whoa, I keep going over. But some of them are like, oh, my God, like, when making these quote-unquote healthy food choices with the with the lean proteins and the high fiber and the volume, and I'm getting to the end of the day, and I have 500 calories left. Like, I can have a couple glasses of wine or whatever it is they want to have. And I'm like, yeah, you can. Like, mm. So it is, it is of all things, like I said, there's no perfect approach to diet. But when you consider human behavior, which as a coach, I can tell you of 12 years right now is the biggest hurdle on my client's face. Mm. It probably is the mo more preferable option, at least initially, like maybe not forever, but at least mm. initially. And I love the, I love all of those points. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. There's a question in here that I didn't send you, but I'm going to ask it you because I know you're going to have an opinion on it. And I just realized my audience are going to want to hear you talk about it. Does a metabolically healthy individual need to be wary of their blood glucose rising slash insulin response after they eat a carbohydrate? This is a very, very, very fascinating topic. I'm actually really glad that you asked this because yeah. 
I think it's again, I think humans love data. They love to go, oh, look at this, look at this number that I can give to something. And I think that the, the, the short answer to this question is that there is no real evidence to suggest that metabolically healthy, so people without type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes for that matter, need to concern themselves with their healthy range of glucose spikes. And there is there there are studies that have been done on this. And I think that it's what is very clear is that people with type 2 diabetes um, should perhaps be concerned about their, their, their levels of, of glucose spikes because they're not controlled. But our physiology is designed to be able to deal with glucose spikes. That's actually what happens in... Um, in normal life, it's what happens after we eat a meal. And if we've got carbohydrates in our meal, our glucose will spike and then it will be dealt with by our healthy pancreas releasing insulin. And that's just what happens in life. I think, and again, I, I really struggle to, to directly quote stuff because I'm, I'm really bad at remembering specific studies. But from, from again, and I, I caveat this, I'm not really an expert on anything. I'm sort of just like I know a little bit about everything. It's kind of part of my job role, really. But... From what I understand about the evidence behind this, when they actually looked at kind of poor cardiovascular outcomes, a lot of the evidence was that people who were metabolically healthy who had fewer glucose spikes were actually having worse cardiovascular outcomes. And I think the hypothesis behind this was that a lot of people who avoid things like carbohydrates will then replace them by other types of foods like fats, for example. So the signs of the fewer glucose spikes were happening either because of, you know, certain levels of of, of poor nourishment or malnutrition even or because those macros were being replaced by something else that was actually worse for your heart than the carbohydrates that, that, that you were having in the first place or that you, you might have been having otherwise and I don't that's not the case if, if we're looking at people with type 2 diabetes and type 2 diabetes itself is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease but I think that what's really interesting is that it's kind of like it's it's what I think a lot of people term as a logical fallacy so we know that um, after we eat certain things, we have a glucose spike. And we know that having high glucose levels might be bad for us. So that we, so then we make this assumption that reducing those glucose spikes is then good for us. And, you know, when you put it like that, it sounds very logical, but it doesn't mean that it's backed up by evidence. And, and things that happen in test tubes and things that happen in labs and things that happen when you add a molecule to another molecule uh, in a in a controlled scientific setting doesn't necessarily mirror what happens in the human body because the processes are much more complex it's like you know that there are so many similar things where people go uh, oh this has been shown to increase acetylcholine levels or whatever and everyone knows that acetylcholine levels have some association with dementia or brain function or whatever so therefore this pre-workout drink is probably really good for that and it just is it's it's always hard to explain why these things aren't true but if we ask what well, why what's the process by which that works i guarantee you most people can't answer that question or can't show you studies that would manage to emulate that actually happening in the real world um you know and just the idea that if a chemical is good it doesn't mean if we drink it it is therefore going to increase the amounts in our blood or in our brain or anything like that because we might just wear out, for example. Like it just, it doesn't, life doesn't work like that. But a lot of people think it does, which is lovely and naive, but also not very helpful. 
projects. But then I wonder, you don't know, I don't want to project onto anyone. I just wonder if, you know, you hear something like that, you think, oh, that gives me a hook, that gives me an in. I will scare, but it's kind of fear-mongering in a way. I'll scare everyone mm-hmm. into thinking that they need to follow my plan, buy my book, buy mm-hmm. my, I'm sure, soon-to-be products on shelves, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. similar to Keto Craze. And I wonder, is this conscious? Or is this, you are that as naive as everybody else that you are now selling to, and you yeah. are, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, innocently and naively buying into this nonsense thing and it's kind of what we said in the beginning like there's a lot of of people out there who have health problems Mm -hmm. who need and they need to be managed but that's not everybody and and certainly it's not one size fits all health Mm -hmm. problem we might all have some kind of health problem whether Mm -hmm. it's you know depression or type 2 diabetes or i don't know whatever it might be but just because that person has depression and maybe needs to, you know, uh, deal with that medicinally or um, therapeutically, it doesn't mean that that person mm-hmm. over there does. So why are yeah. we why are we doing this? And I, I do find it quite scary. Yeah, and I, I think it's a bit of both. And I, th- I think, again, not to get too deep, but I think we, we now live in a world that values um, engagement way more than education. So when people put out content on social media, the the metric of success is not has this informed somebody of something really useful it's how many likes and shares is this going to get and even reputable people do even i've done it you know the the sort of first sentence of a reel where you go is this bad for your mental health or whatever and you you know everybody sort of knows what they're doing but the problem is is getting people past that attraction and then giving them information that is actually solid accurate educational information and and i think that there are some people who still exist who try and do that and there are some people who and these are unfortunately probably the more successful people are the people who focus entirely on engagement because actually if you if you are if, if if you just want to get engagement the success of things like your posts is what is is dependent on how you scare people how you um, make people excited by something that could be really great for them that probably isn't. It's the same with newspaper headlines, I suppose, to a degree as well. It's something that's... that's yeah, but look at the damage forever, but... that that's done. It, that's, this is why I find it most that my... I'm sure everybody who, who follows me and is listening has noticed this. My love for and engagement with social media has drastically reduced and depleted in recent years. And it's because the things that I was spending so much time researching... Mm-hmm. I'm putting out there in in my contextual field, you know, I'm not yeah. going way, I'm not going way left field. Just got nothing. But every time I put a photo up of me in a bikini, I would get thousands of likes. Even now, yeah. if I put up a photo of me and James Sissing, I'll get ten thousand likes. If I spend two hours on a post, yeah, I'll get like twenty likes. And it's just so yeah. depressing. And and it really did dampen my love of it. And especially then, like we were talking about seeing people in our industry that I liked and respected, especially on Twitter. Oh my God, I just was appalled. I was appalled by it. And, I, and I'm and i surprised that I haven't really seen much of that kind of reaction and pushback. And I do, I very much struggle with social media and I completely agree with you. People are now more uh, more concerned, both both the perpetrators and the audience with the engagement than they mm-hmm. are with the content. Um, but that's why I, I want everyone to follow you because you, you strike the balance very well. You know, sometimes you have to play the game, but is the content solid? And that's fine. That is justifiable, and I'm here for it. And you do it incredibly well. Oh, thanks. Um, you too. You do. I, oh, I mean, yeah. I'm bored of social media now. It's yeah. all just photos of my daughter. I'm like, 
<laughs> I'm so bored. Okay, what qualifies as a processed food? And are processed foods very, very bad for us? Okay, so I think it depends who you speak to. And I think basically a processed food is anything that has been treated in any way. So anything that just essentially isn't a raw ingredient. So I think that actually, you know, we used to talk about processed foods and, and, and bundle them all in together as, as you know, things that might not be ideal for people's health. But I think as time has gone on, they've started to... So they use the NOVA classification. That's how they kind of classify how processed, processed foods are. And what people are really looking at more now is the ultra processed foods. So these are the foods that have lots of different ingredients in them um, that are usually quite high in things like uh, salt, saturated fat, sugar, etc. And often have uh, other things like preservatives and, and flavorings and, and colors in them that might, you know, things that you wouldn't find in, in your kitchen cupboard um, as as kind of basic ingredients. And I think it's it's a really difficult world and it depends who you speak to. And again, it's it's become a really fascinating discussion because I think you can't argue that these are particularly nutritious foods, number one. I think the point is that for the most part, they have lower levels of nutritiousness and, and things that would, would be in them. But again, there are a few caveats. They are usually delicious, which makes this very challenging they're usually quite cheap to produce and last a long period of time as well, which make them particularly attractive for people who might not have the same level of access to privilege and food availability and time of preparation as other people. They are just plentifully available. And a lot of us have become, I guess, pretty dependent on them as, as kind of staples in our diet. But there's no argument that they aren't providing us the best sort of nutrition that we could possibly be getting. The other issue with them is that, you know, you put cereals in the same category as, you know, sausages, which is then in the same category as ham, which is then in the same category as chips or whatever. You know, these aren't the same foods. They have different levels of nutritiousness within them. And they have um, different benefits. So, for example, if you take a child who has a very limited diet because they might not have a developed palate yet or their family might not have access to lots of different expensive organic foods and all of those sorts of things. And they're getting a bunch of fortified stuff like vitamins and iron and things in their breakfast cereal then, you know, taking that breakfast cereal away is a silly, silly, silly thing to do. So again, it's about, it's not about looking at the food itself. It's about looking at your diet as a whole. That's kind of how I prefer to look at it. So I don't think that, I mean, I think that there are certain, certain types of processed foods which have certain links with certain concerns. I'm sure that again, coming back to the whole gut health thing, there will be some sort of impact on gut health. But again, we can't really quantify that. We don't know what it is. I think it is sensible to try and limit the amount of processed foods that you have. Very sensible. Um, and I don't think we should be promoting processed foods. I think that where unprocessed foods are available and equivalent, we should be trying to use those as much as possible. Um, and I think that we would, for the most part, benefit from limiting our processed food intake. However, how do we do that in today's society? You know, you are, you you rely on... The government taking action, you rely on the food industry taking action, and you rely on individuals taking action. And those three things are all just part of this really inextricably linked process, which results in what foods that we eat. And actually, you kind of think, 
yeah, eat as few of them as possible. But let's not pretend that they're the same as smoking or whatever, because it, it isn't the case. If you have a diet that consists entirely of ultra processed foods, I would be more than happy to suggest that you try and not do that. But if you have a Solero, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> It's a problem, Mike. It's a problem. The the thing that I loved that you just said there was about the cereal because I was iron deficient anemic in my pregnancy. So having fortified cereal every day, sometimes twice a day, was an incredibly like nutritional nutritional necessity for me. And it's such a good point that you think cereal, oh my God, God, no. I mean, I remember when I used to like really restrictive diet and cereal was just like off, on yeah, the off list. no way. And I'm like, absolutely not now. Even if I'm like, you know, in a calorie deficit now, cereal plays like an almost mm. daily role. When I was pregnant, nutritionally, I needed that. And you just made such a good point. And I've never heard it specified that well before, um, but really sums up the point that it's your diet as a whole. It's not these singular, singular choices. Okay, right, we're running out of time, so we're going to do one more. Okay. I'm really sad because they were all so good. <laughs> I picked really good questions, guys. <laughs> okay, this is uh, this one I think my audience will really appreciate, so I'll ask this one's the last question. What does a doctor have to see, re a patient who thinks that she is experiencing the menopause in order to prescribe said patient HRT? And in what circumstances is that prescription irresponsible? Okay, so this is, again, a really good question. And uh, menopause is a super, super complicated topic. And, you know, even sort of for me as as a GP, I you know, I, I really struggle with it because things have changed quite a lot in the last few years in terms of how we feel about the menopause, in terms of how, you know, what people's sort of acceptable limits are in terms of prescribing. Um, and I think that, I mean, and I mean this in a good way, I think we're learning more and more, we're starting to rethink sort of previous, um, previous things that we that we used to know, or we used to think that we know has, has sort of been superseded by newer information. And I think what's always really difficult in science is when the evidence changes, there's a real trickle down effect. It's not like there's this big, like announcement that just gets made to all GPs they go oh by the way now we do I mean there there are several different ways of announcing these things to GPs but it's not just like suddenly everyone just changes their mind you know you can speak to 10 different GPs about a topic and they will all have slightly different opinions based on their level of experience the level of training the level you know the personal research that they've done the personal interest that they've had in things um and I think that that is what makes it really really sort of challenging one of the interesting things there's lots of misunderstandings about hrt but there's also a lot of misunderstandings about menopause itself like one of the things that you'll often hear on social media is that people went to their gp to get blood tests to see if they were going through the menopause and their gp wouldn't give them blood tests and they, they were kind of outraged by this and you know that's also a problem with us and how we explain you know as gps i mean how we explain things to people but essentially you don't always need a blood test to diagnose um, the menopause. So in, in healthy women over the age of 45, if you have um, sort of vasomotor sort of symptoms like sort of hot flushes and things like that, and you start to have irregular periods where they were previously irregular, you can say that somebody is perimenopausal. Um, and if you've had no periods for 12 months off of hormonal contraception, or if you start to have menopausal symptoms in, in women that have no uterus, um, then you can diagnose menopause. So you don't need a blood test to tell you. And actually a lot of the blood tests 
are somewhat unreliable in, in, in diagnosing menopause as well. And this is what's become really interesting, again, in the private sector, because there's this recognition that people aren't getting blood tests from their GPs. So there are a lot of private services that offer the menopause test, for example, so that people can pay loads of money to have a blood test that they don't necessarily need. And, you know, I, I think that if you, if you sort of say that, so those are, the, those are the things that a GP would want to know to check that somebody is, is menopausal, whether they need HRT or want HRT is, again, such a massively individual discussion. And I, again, I think that what we've got here at the moment is a really interesting pendulum swing because we had this sort of idea, you know, if you go back sort of 10, 15 years the general idea was like, oh, do you really want to go on HRT? It's really risky. You know, there's all these risks, all these risks increase if you do HRT and this is bad and that's bad and you can't stay on it for long or you'll increase your risk of this. And and there was kind of this negative sort of approach to it. And, and it's not that was very unfair, really, if you actually look at it like historically at the evidence and a lot of the newer evidence that was available. And so then what we've ended up with is a lot of people going, hang on a minute. I think we should be rethinking this. And again, as with everything, instead of going, yeah, cool, let's get a balanced approach and go back to the middle, they kind of swung completely the other end. And you've got a lot of people who are real sort of HRT activists who, you know, I guess, not I would say sort of practice out in a way that sort of suggests that they are not as conscious of the risks. You know, there are still some risks that, that still exist particularly in the context of certain conditions. Um, and I think that some of these risks are getting played down in, in, in the process of trying to make it more accessible and to, to help women feel more comfortable that HRT is a perfectly reasonable and valid approach to use. We are perhaps forgetting that there are still some risks involved. And that doesn't mean that people shouldn't have them. It just means that people should be aware of those risks when making those choices and that those choices should be made on an individual basis in conjunction with the help and advice and support of a medical professional. Now, I don't want to sort of sit here and say like, you know, GPs are perfect and always get these sorts of things right. I know that that's, you know, that's not the case. We all have different sort of levels of like I said, expertise and experience and all of those sorts of things. And, and and I don't want to minimize anybody's experience that has been negative with their own healthcare professional, but it's still really important to have the guidance of a healthcare professional in making these decisions. Otherwise we do end up taking on risks that we didn't realize we were taking on. And again, I, I think that one of the things that is really tough about human beings is that I don't think that we have a very risk understandy brain. <laughs> That's a really bad way of putting it, but I don't know that we really stratify risk when we look at situations like actually there's when no you think neuroplasticity about, around risk yeah like well that's a much better way of saying it but like we <laughs> we get in cars every day you know we do all of these things that, that are, are pretty dangerous actually if you look on the surface of it but we're so used to doing them and we're so you know we, we're so used to taking these risks and these risks being such an integral part of our lives that we don't really think about them that much but if you gave us an option to do a, a brand new activity and you presented it in the same way as, as some of these daily risks that we take. We were going, I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's, that sounds really dangerous. Because we don't recognise the benefits of it. We, I think we find it genuinely quite hard to weigh up benefits and risks of a situation in, you know, relative to, to other situations that we put ourselves in all the time. 
Um, and I guess it's risk reward ratio as well. Like, you know, it, it also depends on how bad somebody's menopause symptoms are, for example. Like some people might say my quality of life is so bad that I would be more than happy to take all of these risks. And then somebody might say, well, I get the occasional hot flush. I'm not really that bothered about it. I'd rather avoid it. And this is why it's such a it's such an individual discussion, because the experience, the condition is so individual and so different for, for different women that, you know, you can't again just it's not one size fits all it's really important that we that we have those kind of individualized discussions well we just keep coming back to it you know it depends it depends it depends and it's just it's a constant theme every podcast series i've ever done with any good (laughs) in my opinion through my lens professional it just always comes around to the same thing well it depends it depends Mm -hmm. and I think you're right. I also think it's like we will accept the risk of these kind of old um, practices of, of society or, or, or kind of humanity. Every time there's a new wave thing, everyone's like, yeah. oh, no. oh yeah. no. And we actually saw it with like blood clotting, with, with um, being on the contraceptive pill. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some really minor cases of blood clotting in women when it came to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And it was quite interesting to watch that because I was like, well, there's a lot of, that is a side effect with a lot of medication and a mm-hmm. lot of hormonal options. And I, I do find it interesting. It's almost like, um, like I say, it kind of comes around to, well, you know, maybe that's not a risk you want to take. But for this woman over here, like you said, her quality of life is so depleted now that absolutely it's a risk she'll take. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I, I, I think I love that. And it's exactly what we we're saying at the very beginning of the podcast, taking a step back. Even if you, even if something does appeal to you and you like it, you know, we're all human. It's, you know, you can like the sexy soundbite, that's fine. But also being able and having the awareness to take a step back and being like, yeah, but life and people in life are a lot more watercolor than that. We're not all the same. Mike, it has been an absolute pleasure. I have, I I ventured to say this has been my favorite recording yet. I bet you say that to all the guests. Yeah, but we're kind of towards the end now, so it's more important that I say it to you. Um, I absolutely loved it. Please do tell people where they can find you. I mean, I know that you're not necessarily, you know, out there coaching people, but you still put out great content. And I know you put out your your weekly kind of, what would you call them? What do you call them? Doctor's Notes. Yeah, it's called the Doctor's Note. It's a weekly email, Ugh. but it's like, it's really low uh, value. Like I... <laughs> I <laughs> I do it because I because I want to practice writing and I found myself in a situation where like you get asked to write articles every so often. And yeah. I was like, I don't want to just be waiting to write an article. I just want to do my own. So I just write amusing every week. And it's it's not like, you know, it's not like this is this is a really important fact that you need to know. Sometimes it's just a reflection on like a song a lyric I heard. Like it's really lame what, a lot of times. No, it's but not. I love That's it. what's brilliant. It's brilliant. Wait, and you're an, you're an incredible writer. Like not oh, thank the humour. I think it's such a skill. I also think it's quite, it's, an, it's a natural skill, but a skill that you need to hone nonetheless. It's such a skill to be able to make people laugh with your writing. This is why I love uh, Ricky Gervais's wife, Jane Fallon. She, she writes... Oh, she's the only writer, really, that I've ever read that makes me laugh out loud. And I think Jane says the same for Richard Osman. He like absolutely mm-hmm. loves his stuff. But it's such a skill and it's so rare. So I, I really recommend everybody goes and finds you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the podcast. If you like this episode or any episode for that matter, please do remember to like, subscribe, leave a review. It all really counts and it goes such a long way because... I'm doing this on my own, guys. Give me some help. Um, I hope you all have a great day and make sure you join us next week for another fantastic guest.
Social Podcast Network.